All right, I'm rolling here. So I can now plug my headphones back in. We're all set? (laughs) Yeah, they're ready here. All right. Who's driving this? Yeah, it's good. Wait, somebody somebody forgot the map. (laughs) Oh, then what happened? Well, we got this recorders rolling, and then we all just stared at each other for an hour and realized, oh, somebody should call action. <laughs> so that's to do without a director, because, because only directors can call action. Welcome to The Well. I'm Anson Mount. And I am Brandon Edgens. And we're coming to you, not exactly live, but live to tape from my back porch in Connecticut. Can hear uh, the tree frogs are are back. Mm-hmm. It's always a nice sound. It's uh, I'm not sure why that's so smoothing, soothing. It is, and it's also smoothing. <laughs> but I think we've uh, we, we used to be recording these things from separate houses, and we've gotten slightly less paranoid, and so now we are at a discreet eight feet away across a table. That's about as close as we can get to each other right now for the next five days. Uh, no, I think we're just three days. Oh, three days. Quarantine. Yeah. Three days. Right. Yeah. Damn. <laughs> I was getting used to this. And uh, I guess this episode is the first time that we've had a guest back on the show. Yeah. Jonathan Myberg, mm-hmm. who, uh, as you probably know, if you listen to his interviews back during our first season, he also composed the theme music for The Well, uh, because he's an old, old friend of ours from our college days at Suwannee. And Jonathan is a, he's a polymath. Uh, he was deeply interested in, in music, but a lot of other things in college. I can't even remember his major. Was he history? Oh, gosh. No, it wasn't history. I think he was English. Was it English? Yeah. Pretty sure. Yeah. Extremely well-read, like crazy, malleable mind. Uh, and the interesting thing about Jonathan is that, you know, he chose to go into the field of music. He's now a certified rock star. Mm-hmm. He has some, he was telling me that, uh, I mean, he says in this interview that he recently got to work with Brian Eno, who's one of his own influences, which Mm -hmm. is pretty cool. Um, But he also has this side gig. He's been working on this one book about this one particular bird down in the Falklands for about 25 years. (laughs) And he's finally got uh, his sights set on the finish line. And uh, he was surprised that after recording the album, uh, his most recent album, that he was suddenly left with a lot more time on his hands. And so that's going to help the, the the finishing editing process for this book. Yeah. And he is currently, well, he'll we'll, he'll get to it in the interview. We cover this, but he's you know simultaneously editing his final manuscript and recording and producing two separate albums from two separate bands, his own and kind of both his actually. Yeah. So if 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 anybody that we know during this time who's staying the most busy is probably John. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'll, I'll start out. Uh, Jonathan, you and I spoke, I guess last week, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Time's gotten very gooey. lately, So I feel like it could have been weeks ago, but I think it was last week. Yeah, and and when we spoke, you had, uh, like a lot of musicians do, you'd gone into sequestration in order to really focus on pumping out an album, Yeah, uh, because it takes a lot of focus. Yeah, And then (laughs) as you were in that process, uh, you found out that uh, it was going to be a much longer uh, time away from everyone. Yeah, they told me that we were going to have to stay on the space station for longer. And so like, that's okay, we've got supplies here, and the... But I had actually a lot of things that were coming up. I was uh, I was about to go out on a tour with Shushu, um, and uh, then was going to go to the UK and then to the the Falklands and list all that. Just pretty much went right away. So uh, the good thing is that I had this cinder block of a manuscript that I uh, has my editor's pencil marks all over it, and um, I'd been wondering when I was going to get to to integrating all those and it turned out uh, this is the perfect time for that 
So it's a little bit kind of like, I feel a little bit like Br'er Rabbit. You know, don't don't throw me in that brat patch. Don't isolate me with nothing but something to do that I don't want to do, yeah, really. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, 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 to catch us up a little bit, you know, what yeah. is your what is your manuscript? Oh, my goodness. Give us a little. Well, um, okay, the, the, it's been a while since we spoke in, in what I think was the most caffeinated interview I've ever given anyone. But the... Uh, I'm probably still working on the things I was working on then because these things take such a long time to iterate. There was the the album, new album by my band Loma, which we've just finished and turned in, uh, which we made at the studio that's just about 20 feet away from me. And then uh, there's a new album by my band Shearwater, uh, which is kind of long overdue, and uh, we we crowdfunded that recently, and so we've been getting that rolling. And we did about a third of it so far. But then there's the manuscript. There's this book called... Uh, there was a fight over the title for a while between me and my editor, and my editor won the staring contest on that one. So uh, the book is called A Most Remarkable Creature. Uh, the uh, Epic Journey and Hidden Lives of the World's Smartest Birds of Prey. And it follows these peculiar birds that Charles Darwin met in the Falklands back in 1833 and couldn't understand because they were sort of like flying raccoons. They came right up to him and started taking his things. And uh, he couldn't understand what they were only doing in the Falklands. And so this, this book kind of takes that riddle and runs with it and eventually comes to an answer, uh, but not before it's taken in a whole lot of the history of the planet and... Uh, you know, meditated on why uh, evolution produces certain kinds of minds in different kinds of circumstances, and it also draws in the biography of this 19th century naturalist named William Henry Hudson. So it's sort of this great big yarn that's a, uh, a made of yarn composed of many threads uh, that draws all of this stuff, travel and adventure, and natural history together into a, a story that I hope uh, other people will find entertaining. And if I'm not mistaken, this has been um, almost a, I think, a 25-year journey oh for you. Oh, my God, you Anson, really... yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. It has, yeah. It started in 1997 uh, when I went on this Thomas J. Watson Fellowship uh, to, I wanted to study remote communities around the world. I called it Studying Community Life at the Ends of the Earth, and I pitched for this grant to get it called a Watson Fellowship, and I got it, to my surprise. And so the way the Watson Fellowship works is that they send you to do a project you design yourself in one or more non-U.S. countries uh, that you've never been to. And you have to go on your own and you have to stay out for a year. And you're not allowed to affiliate with any institution. So you really have to do this on your own. And of course, I was 21 years old. I had no idea what I was doing. But within a few months, I ended up in the Falklands and I met these weird birds and they just got a hold of me and they have not yet let go. What's your, uh, you know, besides sales, what, what are your hopes for the book? Um, what would you like it to do? Gosh, the problem with digging into a subject that's this esoteric is that you, you risk losing people in the first 30 seconds. But I feel like if I can keep you for the first chapter of the book and my job is to try to, to, uh, infect you with even a small amount of the enthusiasm I've ma managed to maintain for these birds uh, and for what they've shown me. Because the thing is that it's not just the bird that's interesting, it's the entire world that's revealed when you look at it for long enough. Mm. Brandon, I think you were the one who told me a long time ago that there's that Blake quote about, like, I can, I can look at the knot in a piece of wood until I'm afraid of it. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it's, you know, if you stare at anything for long enough, the world starts to be revealed through it. So uh, I could have almost picked any animal and done a similar kind of story because I I take them, I trace their lineage back through time and look at the, what DNA can tell us about where they came from, the ways that scientists have been able to ask living things in the present about the world of the past through their DNA. And what the story that these birds have to tell us is a, a story about uh, South America, and also about Antarctica, oddly enough. The, the more I've worked mm -hmm. on this book, the more important Antarctica has seemed to me. Because Antarctica was warm 
at the time of the Cretaceous extinctions, you know, when the big meteor hit and the, the big dinosaurs died out. And we think of this as being a terrible time in the world's history uh, because, the, you know, there was fire everywhere and North America especially got hosed. The whole northern world really suffered. But the southern part of the world may not have been as, as affected by the effects of the meteor. But it's hard to tell because a giant chunk of land that was a warm, temperate place covered in forest and grasslands, and kind of like Chile or New Zealand, uh, is now completely covered in ice. And you can't get underneath it, or not without great difficulty. I mean, there's parts of in the center of Antarctica that are just covered in their entire mountain ranges buried under miles of ice. But when that uh, when those places are revealed, we we could even find out, for instance, that the big dinosaurs kept on living down there for another twenty million years, because the uh, Antarctica didn't start to become cold until its last connections with South America and Australia were finally severed, and that wasn't until almost thirty million years after the Cretaceous extinctions. This is the kind of thing I've been thinking about for for years now, but it all started. Anson with this, you know, meeting these birds in the Falklands and looking at them and them looking back at me as, as if I owed them an explanation or something. And, uh, <laughs> it's probably well known amongst people who study it, but you're the one that introduced me to the idea of uh, generalist versus specialist, uh, in terms of, you know, zoological categories, right? You know, yeah. and, and so like a penguin, that's a specialist. Yes. But what's in, but what's interesting? What I had what I had never thought of before is that there is this other you know your 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 bird of interest. This like you said, a flying raccoon, also a generalist. Uh, yes. This uh, uh, so what so go go through that for a second. Well, specialist versus generalist because how did and then how did that allow this species of bird to leave where it was and find success elsewhere? Well, the, their whole lineage is real interesting uh, because they're actually falcons, but the, this is, the, they're caracaras. They're called striated caracaras, or this, this name of this bird that lives in the Falklands of Tierra del Fuego, around penguin colonies and that kind of thing. But there are 10 different caracaras, and they all live throughout South America. And they're basically what South America has instead of crows. Crows never made it to South America, but the falcons... Did I think the falcons probably came up from the ancestor of the falcons came up from Antarctica into South America and diversified there. Some of them, uh, a little group Whoa. of those, left and went north into the northern world and became what are sort of misleadingly called the true falcons, which are the ones that everybody knows if you know falcons at all, like peregrine falcons or kestrels or merlins. And uh, but this is actually sort of a little side group of this of this more ancestral, more, as scientists say, basal group of falcons, which all live in South America. And they're sort of, they're kind of crow-like. They're, they're social, they're curious, they do all kinds of things. One of them has figured out how to eat almost nothing but wasp nests in tropical forests. Uh, but a lot of them are very omnivorous and will eat sort of like whatever you got. And the striateds uh, down in the Falklands take this to a ridiculous extreme. Like they, one of their favorite things to do is to find a sea lion and sit next to it. They find a sea lion that's like sort of hauled up out of the water. It's lying on the, on the shore and it's just like having a nice little snooze in the sun. And that's perfect for the, for the caracaras because they just come in and sit right next to that sea lion because they know that when that sea lion wakes up, before it goes and sort of hauls itself back into the ocean, it's going to take a nice big dump. <laughs> and that's what they fill their bellies with. They just like crops are <laughs> bulging with seal shit. And the, I, you know, their digestive systems are so efficient that they can just give that stuff a second pressing. And that's really good for them. They love it. <laughs> a second pressing. Yes. Sorry, I love that. Yeah. It's like, well, it makes them participants in a marine ecosystem, you know, is the amazing thing. Like, sure. They're based, they're eating the remains of, of, you know, crabs and fish and it's little shrimps and things. Squid. This is, a, this is an aside, but it's the kind of an aside I'm interested in. So, seals. Uh, I mean, I know that elephants' digestive system leaves a lot behind. I mean, elephant dung is the whole ecosystem by itself. It's so much in there. I mean, are seals? Do they have an inefficient uh, 
I mean, I'm asking you to explain seal shit. Well, uh, you know, actually, I don't know that much about this, but my impression... (laughs) My impression is that birds are much more efficient at just about every single thing than mammals. And yeah, okay, yeah. That right. you know, they'll they'll eat human shit. If uh, also they'll eat, um, you know, but you know, like it's not like your 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 dog will eat your cat shit. I mean, it's it's just like for, for some reason, and I don't know why, mammals' digestive systems don't seem that efficient compared to reptiles and um, birds, which are. Uh, this is often said, but I still don't think people have really digested it, so to speak. Um, <laughs> dinosaurs, birds are dinosaurs. Not all the dinosaurs right. died. Some of them lived. Their descendants are the birds. And by that standard, it's actually, it's not like there's, there were, you know, geologists divided time into like this, the, this uh, Mesozoic and Cenozoic eras, you know, right at the, at the, at the end of the Cretaceous. Mm-hmm. And the idea that the age of reptiles was the Mesozoic and the Cenozoic is the age of mammals. Well, Right now, there are house sparrows are the most numerous dinosaur that ever lived. the The number of mammal species is absolutely dwarfed by the number of bird species. There's more than ten thousand birds. Take a guess at how many dinosaur species have ever been discovered. Discovered? Yeah, that we know about. Like provable? I I've got. We're describing. I'm just gonna embarrass. I'm gonna embarrass myself and throw out a, an embarrassing number. This that's is not embarrassing. I didn't know too, this way, I looked it up. Too high, way too high or way too low. I'm gonna say 500. You're actually not that oh, far no. off. What discovered? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that there that existed. I'm saying discovered. I would have said much more. Like like in the thousands, Anson. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the price is right. Give a number. <laughs> I mean, I would have. I would have. I would have guessed. Ten or fifteen thousand. It's only about eight hundred. Wow! Now they presume <clears throat> that there are more to find, but the uh, uh, but so the number of known dinosaurs is absolutely dwarfed by the number of living dinosaurs. The number of known ancient dinosaurs is dwarfed by the number of living dinosaur species that we know. So it's kind of. Well, I guess like, that makes sense. It's the age yeah, of. Cause, it's, go ahead. No, I guess that makes sense because uh, life tends to stratify the longer it's around. You mean like like it like like diversify if it's got longer Excuse me, yeah. Excuse me. Yeah, it, it it tends to diversify it the longer the longer it's here. Well, I think there's plenty of diversity amongst dinosaurs. I think what the, the problem with like there's the reason there's 800 known dinosaurs is that it's, that's really a reflection of um how brutal geology is to the history of life. It's hard to become a fossil. It's hard to become a fossil. And, uh, yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Now, I have a a stupid question uh, that I think a lot of people are probably wondering, or or it's at the back of people's minds as you're talking about this. If the birds are the descendants of the dinosaurs, why did they get so small? Why did they get so small? (laughs) That's a very good question. Well, for one thing, there's a couple of answers to that. One is that the, the as far as we know, the dinosaurs that survived, the ancestors of, of modern birds. Actually, there was one just just described a few a few like the paper just came out a couple of weeks ago. But they actually found a a an ancestor of uh, an identifiable ancestor of a modern bird from before the Cretaceous extinctions, but is in Belgium. It's in the north, which is pretty interesting. But that doesn't, that's not, anyway, I won't get into all of that. <laughs> but the, um, as far as we know, all the dinosaurs who survived the Cretaceous extinction could fly. Now, most dinosaurs seem to have had feathers, but all the ones that made it could fly. And that might have helped them make it. But if you fly, you kind of have to be pretty small for the most part. It puts such severe constraints on you to be able to fly. And interestingly, their descendants have lost flight many times since then. There are many lineages of birds that have produced flightless versions of them, or where if so where places where it's been to their advantage to um, usually to be uh, it's not usually an advantage to be flightless versus being able to fly, but it can be an advantage to be big. And 
flying puts kind of puts a limit on your size. So the largest birds, um, both prehistorically and now, can't fly. I mean, ostriches, you know, or um, that that entire lineage of, of, of birds, ostriches and rheas and emus and cassowaries, that kind of thing. Um, so there was even at one point, I mean, there were some birds between the, after the Cretaceous extinctions that have since gone extinct that were as big as some of the big dinosaurs were. There was one in Australia that called like, it's called Sturton's Thunderbird, I think. It was, it weighed like a thousand pounds. And then in South America, there were the terror birds, which were really amazing. They were kind of like ostriches, but with a great big axe-like beak that would run things down and stab them to death, you know, run big, just kind of like a, um, like a saber-toothed cat or something. And those lived up until about 10,000 years ago. But if you saw one, you'd be like, whoa, the dinosaurs are back. I mean, if you saw a velociraptor right now, Jurassic Park got those completely wrong. They were covered in feathers. Mm. Right, right, like a giant chicken. Kinda, yeah, like a, yeah, without a beak. Without a, <laughs> they had teeth. Birds lost their beak, lost their teeth and tails. But, but we've gone a long way from what I thought was going to be the subject of this conversation. By the way, what did you think the subject was going to be? Well, I thought it was Tom. like, how are you occupying yourself during COVID nineteen? Well, as then, an artist, is it, and, it, it, and is that not what we're talking about? <laughs> <laughs> a fair point. I was going to talk for a long time about brush clearing and how much I enjoy it. Oh, tell us, a, tell okay. us about brush clearing and how much you enjoy it, well, Jonathan. <laughs> it's a Texan custom, apparently. The, I never thought I'd have anything in common with George W. Bush, but it turns out we both like brush clearing. Because the thing is, in this, this area, uh, there's, it used to be maintained by uh, periodic low-intensity wildfires, which kept the juniper down, um, and you had sort of a live oak have these pretty spreading live oaks with a kind of a grassland savanna underneath it. Well, of course, people don't like wildfires, so now you have a thick juniper forest with some poor little scrawny kind of choked out live oaks in the middle of it. So what I've been trying to do on the, the property where my trailer is here is to uh, go out and, and uh, trim out the junipers and cut out their dead wood and just kind of sculpt the whole place. And It's it's big enough that I'll never get to the end of it, but it's a, it's a wonderful way to... Uh, kind of sort the day because I've got a little sawzall where all the blades on it are really bent now but it's but it it, <laughs> it looks like a toy and uh, so it, but one battery uh, lasts long enough for me to get down like a couple of big limbs or about you know half an hour to an hour of work and then haul that stuff into a pile and then burn it and then do that once or twice a day and uh, it really uh, it's a great way to be outside and uh, uh, to feel like a, I can do something tangible that I can see the results of immediately because the projects like books and albums and stuff just take so long you know you don't ever it feels like you never see the end of them and it's also and those other projects are such like sitting down cerebral Ooh. things you know like you just rot in that position if you don't like get out and do something it, physical it, Anson I know you do a lot of writing does the does the solipsism of it ever drive you crazy well, I'm a very solipsistic person, so <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, but the question I had for you is that, you know, I think that there tend to be t roughly two different kinds of creators. Um, there's the one, which I am, which can sit down and focus on one thing all day mm -hmm. and just not let up. And then there are others who need to bounce around to different projects in order to keep, um, I guess, the novelty going. Are you the latter type, Jonathan? Um, I, I guess the evidence would say yes. I, I, I enjoy working on multiple different kinds of things because it, it keeps you from getting too uh, burned out on any one of them. Uh, but, I mean, this book has been going on for so long now uh, that... I can hardly remember my life before it was... I mean, I've been working on it intensely for like the last six years. Luckily, the... Thanks to... I mean, Katie's been sitting with me and going through the edits on this manuscript and just like kind of forcing me to just integrate the edits and keep going and not rewrite every single sentence in the thing. Uh, I'm almost 
halfway, more actually more than halfway done with that, so I can actually see the end of it. With with records, I really enjoy working on that because it's a, it's more collaborative, and you're always working with the engineer or somebody. But but doing stuff where it's just you versus you for a long time, it really, it's like, uh, you know, when when John Malkovich goes into the into his own head and being John Malkovich, and it just becomes Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. <laughs> you know, I was I was having this a conversation with Eric Bogosian, who's a, a oh, yeah. wonderful playwright, mm-hmm. but he recently wrote uh, a nonfiction novel, uh, excuse me, a nonfiction book about the Armenian genocide, mm-hmm. and he was like, "I'm I don't I'm not sure I'm ever going to write a nonfiction book again because of the fact check." Yes. Uh, process is just oh, so, so arduous. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I mean, I am and I'm not looking forward to that. It's it, that my publisher actually is not as rigorous about that as if I were writing for like a magazine. Um, mm. I think they kind of trust me to get my stuff together, but it is on me. And, but luckily I'm not doing, I'm not handling a politically hot topic like that. If, if I were doing a book <laughs> on the Armenian genocide, nobody cares about the evolutionary history of the Falcons. <laughs> That's not a politically but I think it was contentious also, thing. It was more so uh, like if anybody if anybody else had ever written on any subject in the book, they wanted him to cite uh, their response to the same subject if it disagreed. Ooh. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. yes. So it's it, it's it was just a very 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 long process for him, and I I am not sure I could go through. <laughs> Well, I met a I met a writer named Shane Bauer at a writing retreat that was at two years ago in New York, uh, in upstate New York, and he was working on this book that came out called American Prison, where he went undercover as I mean, well, sort of undercover. He didn't he used his real name and everything, but he he worked for a private prison in Louisiana as a corrections guard for months to see what it was like in there, and. Then eventually he was discovered, and uh, he was about to leave at that time anyway. And so he came out and he wrote this book about the world of private prisons and the history of them in the United States, which is eye-popping. It's also just, it's a absolutely riveting, super entertaining, and brutal read. And the company, of course, the, the private prison company, was tried to refute him point by point when he sent him the manuscript and for you know for comment from them and i just can't imagine going through that process it would just be so hard to do i have i have nothing but i don't feel like a real journalist in the sense of of people like that um that are willing to take on something that's going to make people really mad and make people with a lot of money and a lot of lawyers really mad if i make somebody really mad with this well i'd be kind of a i might be thrilled (laughs) I yeah, who, right. I wonder who I could offend. <laughs> but you know, but it's funny. There was a time, you know, during the Bone Wars. You know about that? Yes. You know that that there was a time, you know, that uh, paleontologists, you know, are, get people arguing about things from deep history. That got heated. It got serious. Yeah, you know, but they don't people, have any money. Uh, <laughs> they're not going to sue you. No, 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 I was going to say, but, but this is probably going back to the time that, you know, the science was done by, you know, uh, landed gentry and people oh, who did yeah. have. That's true, actually. Right. Yeah. And there's people who did have money. So you're, it's true that, like, it was it was still a kind of an academic fight amongst, you know, rich people. But they got heated, you know. You know, people got uh, reputations. They got lives destroyed, you know, and had other dinosaur finds taken away from them and renamed by other people who were jealous <laughs> You know, and it was. I, I don't know was, anything about this. Oh, the Bone Wars. Yeah, that's a, that's um, a book, right? That's the title of a book. That's the title of a book which I haven't read. So I'm citing a book I've never even read. But uh, but I do know of some of the stories of. Uh, and I can't remember their names right now. Ah, he's the guy who founded the British Natural History Carnegie? Museum. Owen. Oh, oh Owen. Owen. Yeah. Owen. Yes. Richard Owens. Richard Owens, and yep. he destroyed the life oh, of. And this is so sad because Owens is victorious in this moment because I can't remember the name of the guy whose life he tried to destroy and make us forget. Um, My wife I has this book. Maybe she can. 
grab it off the shelf. Yeah, but anyway, sorry. Is, if in another time, Jonathan, uh, you could have looked forward to uh, assassination attempts and death threats <laughs> and everything, just because you're 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 claiming this crazy, crazy, crazy stuff about falcons evolving from uh, a, from a ecosystem in the Antarctic that nobody is. Uh, which uh, first of all, I want to go back to that because uh, I think Antarctica saved the world. See, okay, I've never heard anyone say that before. You know, I, 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 everyone is, everyone has heard someone say, "Oh, well, life at the bottom of the ocean is like outer space; it's a mystery," which is true, but no one has heard what you just said. Well, that's because we can't see it. We can't see the evidence; it's hidden from us right now. But I, I, I think as a, a Chilean botanist is telling me, is Marcelo Lepo, who I think he now runs the Chilean Antarctic Division. But he uh, uh, was, I've said, do you think that the effects of the end Cretaceous meteor were, were less in the far south than they were elsewhere in the world? And he said, yes, I do think this, partly because when we think about what happened after the Cretaceous, after the meteor hit, we have this giant cloud that, that you know, shrouds the world and it makes everything colder because the sun can't get through. So it was it was darker, it was colder, and there was a lot of acid rain. Well, in the Antarctic, even though it was warm, uh, it was still dark three months out of the year. So it was already darker there than it was in a lot of parts of the world for a lot of the year. It was uh, already cooler than a lot of the rest of the world was. And there was a lot of volcanism there at that time that was pumping sulfur dioxide into the air. And so there was probably a lot more acid rain there anyway. So like these were these were conditions that might not have been so, um, you know, the, that ecosystem already had some time to adjust to these kinds of things. Yeah, and flora and every every all the living things down there might have been a, a little better prepared for the for a world that was suddenly going to be colder, darker, and and with more acid rain. So then all they had to do is kind of zip up their parka a little bit and go. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> You've got at least two records. Yes, um, and that are on the tarmac, so to speak. Yes, about to. Yeah. Yeah, the, about to leave. The, the sec, the new Loma record uh, is finished, and we turned it in. Um, and that's uh, Sub Pop's going to put that out, I think, in September. Um, but they only were talking about that this this week. And Loma is a, a band that uh, I started with my friends Dan Dzinski and Emily Cross, um, who were at the time working together in a band called Cross Record. And Emily's the singer, uh, but I I wrote most of the songs. We did one record, and it. it uh, we really enjoyed that process. We did a tour. It was total financial disaster and total artistic success. <laughs> and Nor, as normal, well, yeah. As well, usually it's both financially and artistically a disaster. <laughs> but in this case, the artistic side was very uh, was really rewarding. Uh. And a, a wacky thing happened though at the end. I was telling Anson about this the other day, where at the end of, or I guess, more than a year ago now. It was on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas in England. My phone suddenly started blowing up because Brian Eno was talking about our band on the BBC. Oh, yeah. That's so cool, man. And I was like, what? And it turned out that he really liked the record, and he especially liked the, uh, the last song on it called Black Willow. So I heard that somebody sent me the link of it, and so there's this this Brian Eno voice going, and I've, I've been listening to this song on repeat, which I very rarely do these days. And I'm like, what? Oh my God. Yeah. And so then a couple weeks later, he went on some French radio show, French national radio, and was talking about something else. They asked him the question, what are you listening to now? Any new music? And he, he, he called us out again. So uh, now I imagine this is just one of those things where somebody asked you that question and we were just the thing that's to hand. But I think he really did like it, and so I thought, well, I'll just reach out to him. So I did, and uh, to my surprise, I heard back from his manager who said, uh, well, I, well, I reached out and said thanks, but I also said, we don't want you to produce our next record, because I imagine he lives in fear of that question from bands. But, uh, but if you'd like to interact with any part of the record that we're making next, you know, we'd love to send you some tracks. So we did, and he ended up producing a song on the record. But I've never spoken to him. It's all been through his manager. So we've sent him files. I know he's listened to them. He worked on them. He sent mixes back. But it's all just been a completely how, musical conversation. 
how was how was his input? Was it useful? It was awesome. We sent him this yeah. one song that was pretty much done. We we did what's, what's called making stems, which are very you know relatively easy to work with, broken out multi tracks of the thing. And then he sent a mix back, just a complete mix. And we were terrified because I thought, oh my god, what if we don't like it? Like we've still got to use it, probably at that yeah. point. So you can't say to, you can't say to Brian, you know, thanks, like, but no, yeah, thanks. just thanks, guy. But, uh, but. So that was like the moment before we pressed play on that was really something. And then we, you know, but we put it up on the big speakers and listened to it, and we were just blown away. It wasn't like it was radically different, but it was just very subtly transformed in this way that made it deeper and richer and more beautiful and. Um, he changed the structure of it around a little bit too. He added a, a little uh, change of key at the very end of the song. He played some more keyboards on it. He put this funny little drum and bass figure in the very end, and uh, you know, it was. It, we were just we couldn't believe it. it. It just he did he totally did the thing that he's supposed to be that he's famous for doing. He recognized the essence and the soul of the song. And didn't mess with that. No, no. I mean, it's, it's that, that's 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 what's impressive is that that was still there, but he was able to subtly shift the light around it. Yeah, and he left in some things that we had left in that I wondered if he would clean up. Like the there was a uh, the sort of a big group vocal in it. The whole vocal is is multiple recordings of all of us singing, so it has sort of a choral feel to it. And. Uh, at the at the very beginning of it, you can hear all of us on all the tracks inhaling before the first note. You know, so it's just all this, and uh, I really liked that, and so we left it in. And I thought he's going to get rid of that. Totally did not get rid of it. It's still there. Real quick, because some some of our listeners may not know who Brian Eno is. It's true. So uh, he's a, yeah. he was a, a a really kind of. Um, interesting sort of polymath of a person he's probably most famous as a record producer for for super you know for records by like u2 and talking heads and stuff like he produced remain in light and the joshua tree and um uh, what the first devo record he did um oh i didn't know that and what um, the first one yeah how did he find those guys at that stage uh i can't remember who passed him i think maybe it was one of the talking heads pass that on to him somehow i don't know the story with that one um but he also worked on those bowie records low and and heroes and and lodger which i spent um a good part of 2018 meticulously deconstructing reconstructing and then performing um and he's just always he's happened to sort of he was an original member of the band roxy music uh but he also he he's uh he really likes to talk more than almost any other thing. He's, he's very sort of professorial. And, uh, but he, he wrote a book called A Year with Swollen Appendices. Uh, it, it, he's, it's amazing how, how much stuff he seems to have left in. Like, it really gets extremely personal. And it's, it's, he says things in it, has these little aphorisms kind of that he just throws out. Like, it's a, very, it's a really nice summation of why it is that, that like, it's easier for conservatives to agree, to agree than liberals because there are many, uh, there are many possible futures and people disagree about uh. the, the direction they'd like to go in the future. Whereas if you, you, if the past is more known and you think you're going back toward the past, then that's, it's easier to go that way. Right. It's a terrible oh, cool. bastardization of what he said, but it was something. No, like but that. I get, the, I think I get the gist, but he's just yeah. full of these really, he just has all these nice little koan like, uh, moments in it where it's, it's funny and, and, uh, entertaining. And he was also actually, this is one of the things that, uh, I'm, always most impressed by is that he was one of the members of the Portsmouth Symphonia. You ever heard of the Portsmouth Symphonia? No. No. The Portsmouth Symphonia was a, uh, a group of art school students, essentially, who got together to perform pieces of famous classical music um, from memory uh, based on and the, the requirements were that you had to either if you were a musician you had to play an instrument that you did not know how to play or if you were a non-musician you could play whatever instrument you like and then you have to try to play this back from memory <laughs> or 
That's great. Also sparkly. And it's amazing because they do they do it. But yeah. <laughs> you know, kinda. Really funny thing is that this has had such a funny effect that their records were actually sold really well. <laughs> People loved listening to this. Well, you know, Brian Brian Eno is one of those artists um, who who is a big believer in uh, shattering our built-in expe- expectations as artists. Oh yeah, definitely. Or or dis- uh, he's a he's a destroyer of process as a way of making a, making artists rethink how they're doing things, including himself. Yeah. So, you know, he and, he and David Bowie, they created a program and this is in the eighties when people just weren't randomly making programs about, um, how to make uh, cut paste lyrics. Oh you yeah. Know? Like the Barosian yeah. cut up things, but it was a, but, exactly. Yeah, but, but you're, and they, they ended up developing a, a, a deck of flashcards that would, that they would play with. That was that would just rearrange ideas, and uh, and I and I actually I really love that instinct. Yeah, yeah. It's always it's always like to make games and systems where you can sort of fool yourself or or um, uh, you know sort of trick yourself into doing something that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Yeah, and what is also like what it's doing is it's also playing with the power of gestalt, mm-hmm. right? Because I think we underestimate how powerful that that uh thing our brain does that for instance the reason when we look at a a, a movie marquee when it's got th- that system of lights that one light will blink and then the one next to it will blink and the one next to it will blink in a very fast order and it looks like it's one light that's moving yes that's that's actually our brain that's making it look like that yeah and that's a it's an incredibly powerful thing that we don't always trust and and he's tapping into that, I think. Yeah, the, those, those cards are called oblique strategies, and mm. and uh, everyone you, you can you can look that up online. There are pr- pr- programs that'll just give you a, an oblique strategy for the day, or you know, at any moment. And some of them are, are my favorite is go outside, shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's one yeah. that's do nothing for as long as possible. There's one well, that's speak. Good. Yeah. No, no, go ahead. Well, there's one that's uh, uh, not building a wall, but making a brick. There's one that's just carry on, do the obvious thing. Um, well, all of those are. <laughs> all of those. It strikes me that all of all of those four things you just said are very pertinent to the current moment. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I was actually going to ask both of you guys. You are the the two friends I have that represent um, the deepest thinking people when it comes to nature and biology. And uh, I always love to ask you what you're, what you're thinking about in those realms. Uh, Cause you always come back with something completely off the wall and interesting. And I was going to ask you right now, you know, I've been hearing from so many people that they've been surprised at how many people are seeing on nature trails. <laughs> Brandon, your wife, your wife, Sharon was talking about this earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. about how people in small towns are suddenly walking out just for a walk, just to get some sunshine because everybody's home. They're not at work. What is, could both of you tell me if you could suggest to all of these people, one thing in nature that you would like them to notice, stop and notice or consider while they're doing this, what would that be? Well, one of the first things that struck me about birds, I mean, I, I guess I have to stump for birds, it was that when I started to realize that birds that I saw every day when I went to a certain place were probably the same bird. Like, that wasn't just one of many cardinals that's always there. That's that particular one. You know, that's Ernie. Or, right. And if you walk around the same area for long enough, Brandon, this is the the, the book that you're slowly turning into a film, The Forest Unseen, is, is this is sort of its central thesis, is that if you get to know a place really well, all of the living things in it start to become your neighbors. 
You start to know them as your neighbors. You start to see their individual qualities. You don't just think, oh, that's another mockingbird. It's like, no, that's that mockingbird that likes to sit on that post. Because they've got favorite mm-hmm. things to do the same way that you have favorite things to do. They want to do the mm-hmm. things they want to do just as much as you want to do things you want to do. And like the other day, I went, was walking down a road near here and I saw this bird called a vermilion flycatcher, which is this absolutely stunning little, so bright red it seems to almost emit light bird with black wings doing this little display flight in the sky. And it was the, I've only seen three ever in my life, I think. And maybe two, actually, because the the other t- last time I saw one was in this exact same place last year about this time. It's probably the same bird. Wow. Yeah. But it went to South America and came back in that time. And when you start to see, you start to see the world as full of these creatures that are traveling around and having lives. And some of them have, have you know, have fucked off and gone thousands of miles away and then come right back to exactly where you are. Um, it, it, it uh. So noticing birds, noticing what they're doing, where they're sitting, um, how they're interacting with the, the things that are in their part of their world. And this can be sparrows and pigeons in the city. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything fancy at all. Um, they're all very ancient and they're all fascinating. We had a, um, a morning dove, which is my favorite bird. Yeah, they're great. Um, and we started, uh, put, we, you know, we put out some bird feeders and suddenly we have a whole host of morning doves that are, uh, it's the, it's just my, it's just one of the most beautiful sounds in nature, isn't it? That's very good. Very good, good, Jonathan. I was actually looking out the the door here. I was like, (laughs) this is the wrong time for that sound. (laughs) Yeah, they they are um, they're wonderful. They're beautiful. Brandon, what would you say? Well, first of all, you know, sort of building on what Sharon pointed out, which was you know all these people that are walking around. It reminded me of when my parents talk about the fifties in the South or anywhere really before TV and air conditioning. Um, that's what people did. They were outside, right? And they walked around and they uh, got to know their neighbors and they got to know. Uh, the neighborhood sparrow and they got to know the neighborhood uh, owl. And, you know, that was, those are the neighbors. And it was when we went inside because of AC and television that we lost touch with, with all of that. And now I guess people have been binge watched as much as they possibly can. And now they want to get away from the television. They want to go back outside (laughs) and, you know, and and it feels kind of like how it was, you know, not just the fifties, but any time before that, but we've lost, touch with a lot of all these things. And on that note, I think what I would, you know, with my, my experience is I'm very lucky to be able to go up to my cabin in the Catskills and write out a lot of this. And I think a lot of people, especially city dwellers are afraid of the woods. They're afraid of that. They're afraid of wildness. And right now I think we're getting all being taught a lesson that, you know, the real, scary stuff is comes from dense uh urban dwelling right you know everything from uh social inequity to uh disease all of these things are associated with dense human populations and i've always felt safer and more at home in the woods so i would say Go go back to your original ancestral home. It is the woods. You're safe there. <laughs> Very safe, safer there I, than anywhere else. You know, I've actually found myself wondering if this if this pandemic is going to. I've been wondering if it's going to shift us away from the metropolis as the centers for economic and social activity and artistic activity. And it's going to move it out into the urban areas because people are going to be less likely to want to be in cities now. I think, I I think some of that's been underway. I don't know if it's necessarily like moving away from, but maybe balancing a little more because it used to be, you know, all of the, the cool art is happening in New York city. And I always that was always kind of a tragic yeah. uh, mindset. Uh, I don't know about 
a rush. I think it furthers something that we're kind of all on our way towards as 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 a culture, which is uh, decentralization on all for all things in all ways, right? Uh, energy production, food production, everything. Just the cost of shipping things around the world is stupid, and uh, and I think every and I and I do think that maybe maybe no, I think it probably will. I think you're right. I think it will inch forward that realization that being that having to be in some giant megalopolis, you don't have to be there to be in touch. You don't have to be there to rub elbows and ping ideas off of other people. It is, do you need to be there? No, locally uh, is, is interesting and and efficient. No, (laughs) it's a, it's a really, it's a, it's a century old mindset. If you think about how many businesses are going to, are going to look at this moment that they're now home networking and realize, do I really need to be paying the rent on an entire building? in Manhattan and the number of colleges and universities that are remote teaching now that are thinking, do we really need to be pumping our alumni to pay for an entire zip code? I was going to say, this is until, uh, until the the next actual military conflict between countries when suddenly the internet is shut down and then we're all fucked. Cause it's like, it's, it's, that's true. It's driven everybody even further into the matrix. And, um, Let's hope that that thing is strong and secure, but I really don't think I don't feel like it is. <laughs> it's, so it's it's uh, it's wonderful as a way of avoiding human to human contact, but at the same time, oh my god, if you took our internet away at this point, um, it oh we'd just be fucked all the way around. We'd go. We'd, it, that would be a real social transformation. But you, but all three of us remember the world before that. Like kids yeah. today. Do I- <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, have you tried this? Have you tried, this flipped me out when somebody asked me to do this. Do you remember how you booked a hotel? If you were, if you were going to go to another town, another city, how did you book a hotel? Well, how did that happen? You'd have had to call them or, but how how would you know, but how would you know? Look in the phone book? Like, you wouldn't have a... You don't have a worldwide Yellow Pages. Oh, that's How true. did you know who to call? Well, this is why there were things like travel agents and... and but I couldn't afford a travel agent when I was in my 20s. No, not necessarily a travel agent. No, but you're right. It's a good question. Like, I... Yeah, like, what was the... Ver- like, how... In other words, how would you access the Yellow Pages of the town you were going to? Right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Like, yeah. Sort of. I mean, I... I, I, Did we call up the uh, operator in that area code and ask them to just list <laughs> hotels and numbers? You could call I, I honestly I don't remember. I, you know, I, 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 last time I was in New York, I was in the subway and I saw a payphone. And I just sort of took another look at it. And I was like, oh my God, it's like an actual functioning payphone. And I picked up the receiver and put it to my ear, and the feeling of that receiver on my ear, and this, moreover, the sound of the Ooh, dial the tone. The dial tone. It's like, when was the last time you heard a dial tone? It just brought oh, me right man. back to being. Right. It brought me right back to being like 15 yeah. and being on the yeah, phone he's... constantly, you know, having the phone cradled against your ear, talking with your friends. Like the. Just. And the dial tone, it was like putting a shell to your ear and hearing the ocean, you know? I couldn't believe that it was still there. I felt like I was going to be able to access the past, no matter who I talked to on this thing. It's that dial tone is the sound of potential. It's a big inhale, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very like, pleasing sound. It, I don't know who came up with that, but it's a really very nice sound. There's a lot of your, our younger listeners are going to have no idea what we're talking about. Can you believe that? <laughs> the di- no, the, seriously. The dial They'll tone. Have no yeah. idea what we're talking. The dial about. tone, dear listeners. Uh, was a sound you heard when you picked up a landline telephone before you dialed in any numbers. And before there were punch keys to dial in, you actually used a little dial. This is where the word dial comes from, uh, that, that spun. And it, the number of times it went past a little, uh, a certain point, it would click a certain number of times. And that was how that signal was sent out over the line. 
So the the bigger the number was, the longer the series of clicks would be. So it would sound like. And then when dial dial tone phones came, and uh, oh, you mean like like punch like you, like uh, punch yeah punch what, phones where they would make a different tone for each number. The, touch tone, the college touch tone generation phones. touch tone phones. Yeah. The, the 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 college generation right before us. There were some quants like Steve Wozniak who figured out how to mimic these sounds and were were able to place international calls for free. Oh yeah, with so-called black boxes and blue boxes and red boxes the, where you the blue these box. up to a Actually, I think Steve, Steve Wozniak invented the blue box. Oh really? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And there was the story about, what was it, Captain Crunch or uh, Cracker Jack whistle that came in the box that happened to be just the right tone to, if you blew it, would could you could basically hack the phone system. <laughs> <laughs> you haven't heard this? So that you could make long-distance calls for no. free. Yeah, you haven't heard this system? Yeah, it turns out that, because there, there were just notes. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny, right? It's kind of musical. It's, it's just, it sounds know? stupid. If you could sing the right song it, to the phone, it would do anything you wanted. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That, exactly. That must be what this sounds like to younger listeners right now. Like, like what again. a stupid system. <laughs> well, gentlemen, we've clocked in an hour. All right. Yeah. It's, and it was, I think that's great. It's been a pleasure talking was, that, with you. And you I don't too. think we're gonna, and we're gonna have to we're not gonna have to edit this at all. That was just that was <laughs> that was smooth as butter. Oh, we all sounded like geniuses for a full hour. That's, that's usually what people tell me. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, Anson, I've been like I, I told you in the message the other day. I've been rewatching Discovery, and it has just oh, been okay. so pleasant to have you as this presence. Except I have started to believe that you're actually out. In a spaceship somewhere. Because <laughs> I was worried it was going to take me out of it the first time. Because I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to keep going. That's Anson. Why, how do they all know, I, not know that's Anson? And then I can't tell you how much easier it is made to book scientists on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Well, it's very sciencey the show, even though a lot oh of gosh. it's kind of sciencey made up stuff, like the the stuff with the uh, the tardigrade and all this. Wonderful! It's just if you well, know, all well, every scientist is almost every scientist is a Trekkie, so it's just it's, it's just like chop and butter. Man. Yeah, yeah, that's that's great. Yeah. That's, that's really thrilling. And well, and the show respects that. I really like that. It makes the idea that that science is exciting, that science is full of possibility, that science is a is a good thing. I, I've just absolutely. I noticed a lot of things watching it this time, and and it's it's. I, I admired it more, and it was great to see you on there. Thanks, man. Well, I've never had any problems imagining Anson on a spaceship. That's really <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not that particular spaceship. That's that I've I've imagined Anson on a spaceship for like the last twenty five years. Usually shaped like a mushroom, though. I guess that's true. Well, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> that wasn't a spaceship. <laughs> yeah. All right, sirs. Well, it's great to see you, and I'll right, uh, I'll talk to you again soon. Okay, have a good night. Take care, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care, guys. I don't know how to hang up. <laughs> Do you want to leave this video? No, but I'm going to. <laughs> What's gonna, we're all going to... Oh, wait, he just went away. <laughs> Jonathan, knows how, Jonathan knows how to hang up. I don't. I'm going to be sitting here staring at this screen for the, for the, rest, of, for the rest of the night. Here we go. I'm pressing end. I'm pressing end. Here we go. And, and, and. Okay, now it's just me now. This meeting has been ended by host. Well, I guess it's just you and me now. What do you want to talk about? The Well is produced, recorded, and edited by Anson Mount and me, Brandon Edgens. Theme music performed by Brandon Edgens based on a composition by today's guest, Jonathan Meiberg. Thanks, Jonathan. 
And good luck finishing your book. And good luck to everyone out there staying sane and safe and healthy during these very weird times. We'll see you again next week. Take care.